the entire Christian life can be summed up in six words. Hebrews 11, not knowing where. In 2 Timothy 1, I know whom. Not knowing where, I know whom. Abraham didn't know where God was leading him. But he didn't need to know where. Because like the Apostle Paul, he knew that he, in whom he had believed. And so it has been for God's people in every age. And if you're somebody here this morning that always has to know the where and the what and the when and the how and the so on and the so forth, all in advance notice before you're willing to obey God and trust His Word, then it may be the case that you're not living by faith in God. Living by faith in God accepts ambiguity without getting nervous because even when we cannot trace God's hand, we are called to trust His heart. Not knowing where I know whom. That's Christianity. The key to our passage this morning will be in Isaiah chapter 36. Is a taunt in verse 5. In whom do you trust? And the truth is, every single day of our lives is spent on the edge of faith, either faith in God or faith in something or in someone else. And we don't get to live today on yesterday's faith. Yesterday's faith belongs to yesterday, which means that every single morning when we open our eyes, we are taunted in fresh ways. In whom do you trust today? Chapter 36 in the book of Isaiah introduces a new section in his book. If you just flip through the first 35 chapters, which we've spent over a year looking at now, you'll see nothing but Hebrew poetry. Line A, line B, line C, so on and so forth for 35 chapters over and over again. And you see the same thing in chapters 40 through the end of the book. More poetry. But chapters 37 through 39 are framed in an historical narrative. They form a bridge between these two major poetical sections of the book. And and it's a narrative that encapsulates its main themes. The main themes of the entire book. In the chapters leading up to chapter 36, chapters 1 to 35, that is, Isaiah has been urging us to trust God. In chapters 36 through 39, now he's going to answer an objection to that urging. Does faith actually work? Does it work right here, right now? Or is it always something that's far off in the future somewhere? Something more ambiguous and intangible and abstract? Does God intervene in our present circumstances or are we merely looking forward to his future coming? Is he really the king of this seemingly out of control world that we're living in every day? 
And the answer, as we'll discover over the course of the next few sermons, is yes, that God is active in our lives, that he is with us even now. And because this God is a God of grace, every single morning presents us with new mercies in the form of new opportunities to walk with bold faith in God. Even if yesterday or last month or even last year wasn't so great. For the sake of review, the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib is swarming the southern kingdom of Judah like a pack of orcs in Tolkien's fantasy. Only Jerusalem remains. Verses 1 and 2 will give us a setting, and you'll notice that we've already looked at this passage before, only not in Isaiah. We've looked at it in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. What Isaiah is going to do is enter into that narrative and posit it right in the middle of his own book. Verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. And the king of Assyria sent to Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool at the highway to Washer's Field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. You'll notice right there in verse 2 that they meet out at the washer's field. If you've been with us since we started studying Isaiah, then that should have a familiar ring to it. Because all the way back in chapter 7, the Lord said to Isaiah, I want you to go out, I want you to meet Ahaz, and I want you to meet Shear Jahub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to Washer's Field. Exact same place, exact same circumstances. 34 years earlier, Isaiah met with Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, at this exact same place during a time when Judah's faith was being tested. Ahaz, if you remember, chose not to trust in the Lord, and that's one of the reasons why the crisis with Assyria has intensified to the degree that it has. But over the course of these several decades, God has not gone away. Now he's visiting his people again in the same place with heightened circumstances, asking the same question that lies before you and me every single day, and that is, in whom do you now trust? Verse 4, and the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man that leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you're able to 
On your part, set your riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. You may have noticed in these handful of verses, verses 3 through 10, the word trust is used seven times. It's the key word in this section. That in this context, this Rabshakeh, the second in charge in Assyria, asks a revealing question in verse 5. He asks, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Is Hezekiah so crazy as to confront a great army with mere words? And this takes us to the heart of the matter. Is the gospel a safe place for us to take our stand against the brutal realities of life? Are God's promises a sufficient, quote, strategy and power for war? Or are they mere words? And whom do we trust? That's the question at the heart of the passage. And whom do we trust? This is the question, not just of our passage, but of the whole book of Isaiah. And if we want to get right down to it, it is the question in the whole of our lives. In whom do we trust? Of course, the entire answer to these questions depends on who God is. The Bible says that He is Quote, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4, that's who God is. Well, if that's who God is, then we should then turn Rabshakeh's question around on him. Do you think then that a great army is a viable strategy and power against this God? This is the conflict that's waging in this narrative, and it's the conflict that wages in our world today. And brothers and sisters, it is the conflict that wages war in our hearts every day. Of course, Rabshakeh, not unlike the world today, has such a low view of God and has such a high and inflated view of himself that he can't imagine anyone defying him. That's why in verses 6 through 10, the Assyrian brags on a mixture of half-truths and intimidation. There are always going to be arguments against the living God, and they can be effective too. In fact, if you notice in verses 11 and 12, Judah's officials beg the Rabshakeh to stop speaking in Hebrew and to speak instead in Aramaic so that the common people won't know how bad the situation really is. They're still living and operating in an illusion. But at this point in verse 12, the Rabshakeh presses his advantage, and he hints at the hellish conditions of an all-out Assyrian siege. He says, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall? He says, no, my message is for everybody who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. Not a pretty picture. This is what awaits if you rebel against us, if you resist us, if you come at us with mere words. This is the fate. Is this really what you want? But then he's not done. In verses 13 to 21, he turns up the heat a little bit more. And just like the key word in verses 3 through 10 was the word trust, so now in these verses, verses 13 to 21, the word deliver will be the key word. 
and it's going to be used seven times as well. And that word deliver is the sense the word is to extract, it's to draw out, it's to, it's to snatch away from danger. Pick it up in verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city has been given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each one his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and I take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine and a land of bread and vineyards. What Isaiah wants us to see is how the Rabshakeh parodies God's promises of deliverance. In verse 14, he says, thus says the king. In verse 16, he says, thus says the king of Assyria. But this, thus says the king in verses 14 and 16, are set in direct contrast with what we see in chapter 37, verse 6. It's set in direct contrast with, thus says the Lord. Two kings, two decrees, both offering deliverance. On what will you trust in, for deliverance? Where will you rest your faith in the hope to be delivered? The question that the Rabshakeh is, is posing to Hezekiah and to Israel, or to Judah rather, is will you trust in mere words, the mere words of Hezekiah, the mere words of this so-called God in whom you trust? Or will you trust in the great army of Assyria? He is a false prophet, offering a false peace. He's saying in these verses, aren't you tired of living under siege all the time? He says, you don't have to eat dung and urine. You can have figs and wine in a land of bread and vineyards. Doesn't that sound so much better? This can all be over soon. Just give in and my king will give you peace. He'll give you security. He'll give you your own land. He'll give you your own kingdom. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see the satanic logic in his offer? God had already promised his people peace and security in their own land if they would trust in him, that he would be their deliverer if they would obey his word, but now a counterfeit deliverance has been dangled in front of God's people. Look at verse 16. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace not with the God of Israel. Make your peace with me. Come out to me and I will give you a kingdom. Does that sound familiar? It's essentially the same temptation that was given to the first Adam in the, in the garden, that if you would listen to me, oh, you will be like God. And it's the same temptation that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ, our second Adam, who was taken up by Satan to a temple mountain to look at all of the kingdoms of the world, and he says, 
All these I will give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. He says, Jesus, make your peace with me. Come out to me and I will give you a kingdom. Praise to the Lord Jesus Christ that he, though weak in every way that we are weak, tempted in every way that we are tempted in his humanity, he was yet without sin. That he proved a necessary obedience and a faith in God that you and I have not shown in our own lives. That Hezekiah and Judah has not shown, did not show in, in their lives. A kind of disobedience and rebellion, a kind of lack of faith that was deserving of of God's judgment, and yet Christ willingly came, entered into the same circumstances as us, faced the same temptations as us, the same satanic devices as us, and yet was without sin, such that he would qualify himself to be the perfect Savior, to be a perfect mediator between us and God and between God and us, such that his life would be a worthy sacrifice for the full forgiveness of sins of all who would trust in Him. Only a perfect and a sinless Savior will do, and that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in the face of this exact kind of temptation. But here we see in verse 18 that after the Rabshakeh mocks the Lord as just another idol, he seals a serious fate, verse 18. He says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, Assyria is undefeated. They're just mowing down the competition one after another. Do you really think that your God will help you end up in any way different than these other kingdoms? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Nowhere. Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Nowhere. Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Answer, no. Verse 20, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Vegas has set the odds and they're not looking good. Who are you going to trust? Mere words or a great army? On what do you rest this trust of yours? The taunts continued. But as we see here in the rest of our passage, evil overplays its hand. It always does. Human arrogance that challenges God may appear impressive and it may appear a powerful, but it cannot succeed in overwhelming God's word. He is not just another idol. He is not even the greatest of all gods. He is the Lord and there is no other. Our part is to trust in Him as the one true God that He is. And when we do, oh, in those moments, He enters in with real deliverance through our faith. And that's exactly what we see in the final portion of our chapter, beginning in verse 21, we see in that concluding paragraph in chapter 36, all of the officials of King Hezekiah that we saw at the beginning of the chapter have now come back to Hezekiah, and they're in sackcloth mourning because they know that all is hopeless. They're about to get ransacked by Assyria. And what we'll see, beginning in the 
Verse 1 of chapter 37 is a turning point in the history of God's people. Here they are at the end. They're surrounded by a superior force. The enemy is gloating over them. All they have left is God. And what will they do? Will they try to rescue their pride and negotiate their way out of this like they always have? Will they apostatize like the northern kingdom and give themselves to, false, to the false gods of their enemies? Or will they for the first time in a long time remember Ahaz from 30 years earlier and how that didn't go well? And will they put a counterintuitive trust in the word of the Lord? Verse 1, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went to the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim who was over the household and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests over the sackcloth, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Hezekiah finally defines reality. He stops living in an illusion of his own making, thinking that things are really not as bad as they really are. He gets real with God in a way that his father Ahaz never did, and he puts on sackcloth. That's the attire for mourning and sorrow. And he goes into the house of God, and he seeks out the man of God. Hezekiah is completely run out of cleverness. He's disregarding appearances. There's, there's no reason at this point to appear outwardly as if he has it all together anymore because he doesn't. Instead, he turns to God in deep need. He has heard the word of the Assyrian king. Now all he wants to hear is a word from the king of kings. Verse 3, they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. In other words, he says in verse 3, we admit it. We failed. In the end, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed just like a mother in labor, all in our own strength, and the only thing that we have birthed is exhaustion. We're physically exhausted. We're mentally exhausted. We're spiritually exhausted. You ever felt that way? But notice that Hezekiah's primary concern, and this is how you know if his sorrow is not merely a worldly sorrow, fearful only of the consequences of sin, but it is a godly sorrow. This is how you know. Look at what he says in verse 14. His primary concern is not ultimately his own safety, but it's God's glory. Assyria is mocking the living God. And it's the worldliness and the faithlessness of Judah is the reason why. God's people are the reason why God's enemy is mocking God. 
Their lives are such that gives no valid testimony as to whether or not such a God as this even exists, much less that this God is worthy of being trusted in. He's saying we've worn ourselves out, but even worse, our faithlessness and our worldliness has made God look really bad. It's made him look really weak. And now our enemies mock him. Hezekiah's heart is breaking for all of the right reasons. And it's at this point, not a moment sooner, that God breaks in with a word of promise. Verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land." How is it that God handles the great army of Sennacherib? Oh, I want you to notice this. It is not by meeting force with force. <laughs> no, God is, God is way more subtle than that. He flies under the king's radar. He enters into his psyche. He alters his mood with nothing more than a whisper of a rumor. And then the almighty king of Assyria with his great army flees for home without laying a single finger on Jerusalem only to be, quote, killed in his own land. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? The living God gives his answer. This is all that it took for the living God to deliver his people from a great army, a mere whisper of a word. Why is this historical narrative in the public record of God's holy scriptures? Not just once, as we've seen before in 2 Kings 18 and 19, but twice also here in Isaiah 36 and 37. Why does God want this narrative in his Bible, not just once, but twice? And the answer is because unbelief still sneers at faith in God. We wake up in the morning, we consider all of the daunting prospects that await us as soon as we put our feet on the floor and we quickly lose heart. But just as God with Judah, God doesn't leave us. He promised to be with us. And He's able to deliver us if we would just stop playing around and putting up appearances and like Hezekiah, if we would just simply begin to define reality and just get real with Him. Real about our circumstances. Real about our own sin. About our own unbelief. About our own fear. About our own anxiety. Get real about our own pride. Get real about all of these things and all of the consequences that it's brought in our life. All of the ways in which our worldliness and our faithlessness has made God look bad to the world. Has shown Him to the world falsely to be one who is not worthy to be trusted in. Is to get real with Him. No, a passage like this makes us stop and question ourselves. 
If no one ever thinks that we're a little bit crazy for sticking our necks out and trusting God's promises, are we really living by faith? If no one has ever asked you to explain the hope that is within you because of certain ways that you interact with others and decisions that you make and things that you oppose, is our hope really any different from their hope? Is our Christianity so audacious, so counterintuitive that it requires nothing short of a spiritual conversion to enter into it? Or is our brand of Christianity something that can be done without the Holy Spirit? Another pastor put it this way, perhaps one reason we see so few conversions today is that our Christianity isn't an alternative to convert to. It's a padded, safe, predictable worldliness with occasional stop-offs at church. We think it's God's job to ensure our undisturbed routines. God thinks it's our job, on the other hand, to prove how real He is in the real world today. Is he right? This has been the thought that's been rattling around in my mind this week as I've meditated on this passage. Is he right? I don't mean, is he just right about that other church down the road or that big church that hit the news this week or whatever? Is he right about our church? About us? About our faith? About my faith? About your faith? Does the world look at us? Does the world look at our church? Does the world look at, at you and concludes, now that's a reliable Savior worth trusting in? Or do they think, it seems from that person's life, there's nothing more I can get from Jesus that I can't find elsewhere in this world. Brothers and sisters, there's not a single one of us in this room who has arrived Nobody here has graduated summa cum laude in the faith department. That if God were to show us, I think, in one instant, the full meaning of living by faith, we might all gasp and say, nobody can live that way. Not in this world. Friends, that is why God keeps throwing our lives into upheaval. That's why he continues to bring confusion. That's why he continues to press in on us with Assyrias and, and Rabshakas to, to test us and to train us. He wants us to experience what it's like for this, for him to come through when the only thing that will suffice in our life is God. When the only thing that will suffice is a mere whisper of a word. During a time when God was doing a great work of renewal in the life of Francis Schaeffer, he asked his wife this, Edith, I wonder what would happen to most churches in Christian work if we awakened tomorrow and everything concerning the reality and work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. I don't mean just ignored, but actually cut out, disappeared. I wonder how much difference it would make. We concluded, he said, 
it would not make much difference in the many board meetings, in committee meetings, decisions, and activities. When God led the Schaefers to start the Labrie Institute in Switzerland, they trusted him to be God in specific ways. His wife, Mrs. Schaefer, Edith, wrote this. Looking back and reflecting on that season of their life, she said, this is what we felt we were being led to do. To ask God that our work and our lives be a demonstration that He does exist. Have you ever prayed that? God, help me to live and work and speak in such a way today that it would be a demonstration that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact Lord and that He has in fact raised from the dead. She says, we wanted a demonstration of the fact that God is able in the 20th century to give a plan that is fresh and unique, that is not, that it's not necessary to follow along in the ruts of the way that it's always been done. No, among other things, we were sure that in this way, the work would be prepared for the needs of the future and not just be meeting the needs of the past. The Schaefers were discovering what it meant to live by faith. They didn't know where, but they knew whom. It's the sum of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Every day we wake up and before we put our feet on the ground, we need to be reminded of six simple words. Not knowing where, I know whom. 